You're listening to Asia Rising, a podcast of La Trobe Asia, where we look at news, views and what's happening in the region. I'm your occasional host, Ewan Graham, the director of La Trobe Asia. Joining me today is Taeyong Ho. Taeyong Ho is one of the best known defectors to have left North Korea in recent years, but he's so much more than a defector. He's also a authority on North Korea in his own right and brings knowledge that only someone who has worked and lived most of their professional life in North Korea can do. Mr. Tae was a full-time career diplomat for the North Korean diplomatic service and had two postings in London. I knew him well on the first one of those and on the second he took the dramatic decision to leave the embassy and defect from North Korea with his family in 2016. So it's a great pleasure to welcome you, uh, Mr. Tay, on your first visit to Australia. Um, welcome to Melbourne. Great pleasure to meet you again in Melbourne. I thought we might start with uh, your reasons for visiting Australia and your impressions about Australia uh, in general and what you've heard so far about people's knowledge and interest on the Korean issue. Hmm. To my impression, there is not so much knowledge, enthusiasm to know about Korean issues in Australia, but I tried hard to uh, tell them what's going on in Korean Peninsula in Sydney Opera House uh, speech, and also I met many the people. I learned that Australia is actually at the center of whole Asia, but Australian people think that they are more near to Europe like a United Kingdom. They are more interested in the issues like a Brexit rather than the issues near to Australia. Now, you're very well known as a commentator, an outspoken critic of North Korea, but we also have a personal connection going back. When I was in the UK diplomatic service, we used to meet quite regularly. I very much enjoyed those conversations as one of the highlights of my career in the UK Foreign and Commonwealth Office. But now here we are several years later on the other side of the world. Mm. You now live in South Korea. I live in Australia. As you look back on that decision to defect three years on, have things worked out as you expected? Oh, uh, not exactly. When I defect to uh, South Korea, it was 2016. And to my impression, at that time, North Korea was almost pushed to the tight corner due to its behavior of rush for nuclear acquisition because of its nuclear tests and ICBMs. And there were a very strong censorship in the world community to intensify economic sanctions against North Korea. And in South Korea as well, there was a very strong push by a certain political forces to sanction North Korea. So it almost uh, seemed to me that it could be very difficult for Kim Jong-un regime to continue its nuclear and ICBM program. It turned out to be that now the sanctions, to my impression, is uh, very much loosened. Now uh, North Korea seems to have entered the Premier League of World Nuclear Club or whatever. So I think the past three years of the development on North Korea is a little bit disappointing. On a more personal front, as a, a North Korean diplomat, you had access to the internet and outside information in a way that ordinary North Koreans did not. But 
were you still prepared for what South Korea was like when you actually saw it for the first time? Did it match your expectations? When I defected to South Korea, I thought that I knew a lot about uh, South Korea's political culture and its diversity. But when I defected to South Korea and when I actually lived there for three years, now my understanding of the political culture is more, I think, in-depth. So now I, I learned a little bit more and it seems that I know much better than ever before when I was as a diplomat in London. So what was different to your expectation before you had a chance to see South Korea for yourself? Mm. Oh, when I uh, read about South Korea through internet, I thought that uh, South Korea has really a strong economic power and compared to North Korea, its economy uh, was 40 times bigger. Uh, South Korea played a very important role in the world politics. So I think that if I defect to South Korea and try my heart and contribute myself to this cause, then I can make more quick changes in North Korea. But uh, in the past three years in South Korea is not developing as I expected. Let's talk a little bit more about the geopolitical situation now and start with inter-Korean relations because you have a unique vantage point on that now, having been in North Korea for most of your life, but now based in South Korea. The Moon administration has made a real push to try and advance the reunification agenda as, as far and as fast as it can. In fact, President Moon has now committed to a timeline for reunification in his recent speech in the 2040s. What do you think is the prognosis for inter-Korean relations, given that North Korea has proved to be a very elusive and tricky partner to deal with for the South? President Moon's administration, of course, has achieved to some extent in inter-Korean relations, for instance, South Korean government to some extent succeeded in keeping moratorium of North Korea on the nuclear test or ice beams. But on the whole, there was no any important progresses in inter-Korean relations. For instance, as for the issue of denuclearization of North Korea, there was no any progress, even though North Korea still has not resumed its nuclear test or ICBMs, but in the last few months, they carried out almost nine times of short-range missiles and multiple uh, launcher tests. They are not back to negotiating table with America yet, but on the meanwhile, they improved quite a lot in their relations with China and Russia. So I think that the current South Korean government's of engagement uh, with North Korea is not working uh, very well as they expected in 2018. Is that because from the North Korean point of view, South Korea is just a stepping stone to get to the United States? I think South Korean government gave a little bit unnecessary too much expectations to North Korean side because when there was first summit in April of uh, 2018, 
there was really a high expectation from Kim Jong-un's side. North Korean regime thought that uh, South Korea might be able to resume uh, its Gaesong industrial complex and Kumgangsan tourist resort, while North Korea still keep its uh, nuclear missiles. But South Korea, as well as North Korean regime, have not seen the reality that South Korea itself is now tied to international uh, sanction regime. And uh, there is really a little left for South Korean government to do by themselves independently in terms of sanction relief. So that's why at the first few months and the last year and even this year, to the side of North Korea, they seemed very disappointed because they didn't get much from the several summits with the present moon. But on the meanwhile, our South Korean's side also learned that uh, they are very much limited in their means available actually to meet the demands of North Koreans. So this kind of misunderstanding, I think, was the main reason of the current South relation between North and South. We've talked about the official government's position, but what about ordinary people in South Korea? What's the mood there towards the North? Are they behind the government in its push towards an accelerated timetable for reunification? Or is there actually a more of a divided view towards North Korea in the South? In political culture, the in South Korea, conservatives and liberals are very much divided how to deal with North Korea. But in general, in South Korea, I think the appetite for reunification is getting a fade away. The young generation in South Korea do not feel any necessity in the issues like countries' uh, reunification. Majority of young generations think that they would be more comfortable in keeping the current divided situation rather than to be reunified. They think that reunification is something which is really unexpected. So that's why instead of this kind of changes or more unexpected things, they want to keep the realities or they want to see the features in their sight, not you know, unexpected things. So given that, maybe a way of understanding President Moon's impatience on reunification is this may be the last chance actually for a South Korean administration to really push the reunification agenda because the support of the Korean people in the South is, as you said, declining over time. Yeah. When there was the April 25th North and South Summit, there was a great expectation from South Korean population because they saw first time in their eyes about the real voice of Kim Jong-un and the flexibilities of Kim Jong-un. And in September, they saw there was hard welcome by North Korean Pyongyang citizens towards Moon Jae-in. So at that time, the support and enthusiasm was a little bit high. But after that, that kind of enthusiasm slowed down. Now, more than 70% of the South Korean population to not believe in issues like denuclearization of North Korea. And they also do not believe in the Kim Jong-un regime. So that's why the negative impression about Kim Jong-un is rising inside South Korea. So I think the people 
are losing a kind of appetite for reconciliation or uh, reunification of Korean Peninsula. We'll come back to South Korea in a minute, but I want to ask you the main question that uh, is on people's minds. Uh, the US-North Korea relationship framed by the peculiar Trump-Kim bonhomie, or uh, is it a love affair, or is it a reality show? There are various ways of, of looking at it, but it's a highly unusual relationship now between the US and North Korea. In that, who do you think is currently winning? Is it Kim Jong-un, or is it Donald Trump? And what's the next phase ahead? I think definitely Kim Jong-un is winning this game. Before the Singapore summit, or before the summit between North and South, there was really a high pressure from the American side at that time. In 2017, President Trump openly said that the military option could be one of the options on the table. But because of these summits, now nobody in America says anything about military options. And secondly, even though there is no change in a sanction regime, but we have to note that there is no more any additional sanctions. North Korea still keeps its all nuclear missiles, but on the meanwhile, there are no any additional sanctions yet. So if the current level of sanctions go on, I think North Korea can easily endure the current uh, sanctions in the long term. And on the meanwhile, because of their moratorium, North Korea improved uh, very much their relations with Russia and China. As long as North Korea is silent on its nuclear test and ICBM, Russia and China are not uh, so much eager to tighten their sanctions against North Korea. So in a word, there were, are no more sanctions no more any military options. So I think the very difficult period for Kim Jong-un, I think, is already over. Now, after these of summits, even though Kim Jong-un does not keep its pace or promise of denuclearization, now America cannot turn back to kind of raising more pressures against North Korea. So if Kim Jong-un has been successful in gaining more legitimacy, both as a, a leader, but also for North Korea as a, a nuclear power. And if that's the short-term strategy, I'm a little less clear about what the long-term strategy is. He's a young man still. He will be around if his health holds out potentially for several decades more. If he's thinking ahead 20, 30 years, he has to have something more than just enduring sanctions in mind. What do you think is the long-term game plan. How ambitious is he? And where do the great power relationships feature in that view? Hmm. Kim Jong-un wants to develop North Korea very different way from China or Vietnam. Kim Jong-un wants to establish a kind of Gaesong industrial complex style of isolated and closed free economic zones, many economic zones inside North Korea. And one of those projects are the World International Tour Resort, which he, he is now building. The another one was the Samjion Tourist Resort building he is doing. So he is building these tourist zones near either to the border with the China or border with the South Korea. He 
built many buildings and he won't open this as a kind of you know tourist resort for south koreans and chinese in order to earn hard currency that's why he strongly demands a south korean government to open and resume the gumgangsan tourist resort and gaesong complex and i'm sure the south korean government will go on to do it so if he succeed that at least he can host 1 million South Korean tourists in Gumgangsan and in Galma Beach Resort. So he can get a little bit more hard currencies from these kind of deals. So he can be a little bit of relief. But in general, he can't make any great economic prosperous in such North Korea. What about the relationship with the United States? Because President Trump is unlike any U.S. president before. There may not be an opportunity like this in future. Do you think Kim Jong-un is willing to gamble to try and gain something diplomatically in terms of a balanced relationship that turns the old adversarial relationship with the United States into something rather different in, in that long term, North Korea faces China as its economic future increasingly, but also in terms of China's rising security role and uh, assertiveness throughout the region, the only way to balance that is to have a corresponding partnership with another great power. Is the United States that target for Kim Jong-un? Yes, I think Kim Jong-un is trying to use the current relations with America for two immediate purposes. The first one is that Kim Jong-un wants to uh, strengthen his political control and the legitimacy inside North Korea for his long-term leadership. So after three meetings with President Trump, Kim Jong-un openly said to the North Korean people that he is the one who can meet very freely with the world, you know, first-ranking leaders like President Trump. He explains that he does not travel to meet the President Trump, but he is the President Trump who always makes long journey to meet Kim Jong-un. So he says that his grandfather, his father, they longed very much to meet the President of America at the same level, but they failed. But because of these nuclear weapons now, he almost reached the same level with the president of America. And another thing that the same thing is happening, what really happened between America and China in the past. North Korean regime strongly believed that in the near future, America has no choice but accept North Korea as a kind of new nuclear state in this region. Uh, that is the North Korea's first uh, reach. And then another thing is that now North Korea actually achieved a lot by cancelling many joint drills between ROK America, which is in the meantime also the security threat to China. So China, when they look at uh, the, those diplomacy of Kim Jong-un, now Xi Jinping gave some credit to Kim Jong-un. So by playing with America here, Kim Jong-un also Uh, serves for the interest of China as well. So the role of North Korea as a bumper zone for Chinese interest is now even more strengthened and intensified. Finally, let's bring the focus back to South Korea. That picture that you paint that North Korea is basically getting what it wants and is able not just to empower itself and give itself extra legitimacy, but also able to drive a wedge increasingly between the United States and South Korea. That's a rather disturbing scenario for South Korea in future. Even though its economy may be, may be 40 times the size of North Korea, 
South Korea looks vulnerable in a geopolitical sense in a way that I can't remember seeing for many years, if it may in fact be in a, a more vulnerable state at any time since the Korean War, given that it doesn't have a firm relationship with any of the major powers at the moment. The United States is, there are also frictions between President Trump and President Moon on, on the issue of burden sharing uh, and exercises. What's your prognosis for South Korea going forward? How can it overcome the traditional Korean problem of being a smaller power surrounded by competing great power interests? Now, inside South Korea, there is now very great debate. What would be the South Korea's alliance future? Now, the current South Korean government is advocating that a South Korea should be more independent from countries like America or Japan, and they want to be near to Russia or China. So they think that that is the right way to be more neutral in the fight between America and China. So the current government is looking for a kind of new path for the future uh, South Korea. And on the meanwhile, as far as Kim Jong-un is concerned, he wants to take uh, South Korea as a kind of hostage to its nuclear the weapons. Kim Jong-un knows very well. North Korea is very small. They do not have enough economic power to overwhelm South Korea. So how can we win this kind of contest between North and South? He knows that he is, is always in a low key with the South Korea. Relying on these nuclear weapons, he wants to control South Korea, not to have any kind of dream of merging or observing North Korea to its system. So that's why in the upcoming 10 or 20 years, there cannot be any good fundamental changes between North and South Korea relations. Only the time can solve the current situations. I think the North and South can really uh, make uh, real changes when the generation in the leaderships are all retired and young generations are in power. Something like in North Korea, for instance, the generation of Changmadang, I mean the generations who were born during the arduous march or in 90s when they are grown up, and in South Korea as well, when the generations born in 90s are in a mainstream of the politics. Only change of the generations, I think, can solve the North and South problems. Taeyong Ho, it's been a great pleasure to have the benefit of your unique insight on Asia Rising. Personally, I count you as an old friend and it's a, a great pleasure also to welcome you to Australia. Thank you very much. Okay, with a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast of La Trobe Asia. Please follow us on Twitter and look forward to our forthcoming events. I'm Ewan Graham, the Executive Director. Thanks for listening.